Welcome to the Sam Says Podcast. I'm Samantha Oldsfry, the CEO of the Illinois Association of Medicaid Health Plans, also known as IMHIP. In this podcast, we focus on all things surrounding the Illinois Medicaid Managed Care Program. Welcome to the Sam Says Podcast. I'm the Sam and Sam Says, and today I'm very happy to welcome Judith A. Cook, Professor and Director at the UIC Center on Mental Health Services Research and Policy. Judith, welcome. Thank you for having me, Sam. And I'm I'm so glad you're here and I'm looking forward to this discussion. We've been talking about behavioral health for a while now, um, but there's always so much more to talk about. I think it's one of those topics where you never cover enough of it. Um, and especially in these times and as more research is coming out, there's just so much to dive into. And you guys at the center, you know, you want to engage the full, you know, and have full community participation. And I love that because it really aligns with what we want here at IMHIP and with Medicaid in general. And I'm always saying you really can't move the needle on your own. Like you need collaboration. You need that full community participation. And I think it is so critical to sort of dive into what you do at the center and what the center does and your research and role. And so if, let's just, if we could just start there, if you could just tell us more about the Center on Mental Health Services and research and policy and your role there. Sure. Um, the center is located in the Department of Psychiatry at UIC in the College of Medicine. And it conducts research related to service delivery, uh, psychiatric epidemiology, and uh, training of service providers in a variety of different areas. It has been funded since um, 1990, actually, in a series of five-year uh, uh, federal um, research and training centers focusing on psychiatric disability. But as um, we have done our work over the past three decades, we've moved into um, other areas uh, that address the vulnerable populations that are make up the Medicaid beneficiary group in the US today. That part is so important because I, I've said this before and our listeners probably know this, but Medicaid's the largest payer of behavioral health services. And so when you're talking about re psychiatric research, the, the work you're doing is going to impact our Medicaid members in a larger proportion than commercial payers or Medicare or something else, because so many um, individuals with severe mental illness or behavioral health care needs, uh, we in Medicaid cover a larger portion of those than, than other payers. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, that focus on those vulnerable populations? Because it is so, so paramount and key to sort of what we do here in Medicaid. And I think by the nature of being on Medicaid, you probably are vulnerable, um, but then you add on uh, mental health conditions and, and it, it escalates further. Yes, it's certainly true. 15% uh, of Medicaid beneficiaries are adults with disabilities. Um, and uh, just one of those disabilities is psychiatric disabilities. But this makes them highly vulnerable to poor life outcomes. Um, 
even though they just comprise 15%, they account for almost 40% of Medicaid expenditures, which just goes to indicate their high level of need. And it also means that enhancing health for this group is of the greatest concern. The trick is to deliver high quality, evidence-based, user-centered services that vulnerable populations really want and need. Um, there's no room for expensive and unwieldy treatments and all potential providers um, need to be utilized. And that includes family members, peers, and natural supporters like neighbors, uh, the person who delivers Meals on Wheels, uh, members of uh, people's faith communities. Um, mental health really um, needs to encompass support from all of those individuals for Medicaid beneficiaries who have these kinds of vulnerabilities. Oh, I love that you've pointed that out. And we've one of our podcast episodes we did earlier was on like mental health first aid and the recognition that when we really are talking about mental health, that it's not just the practitioner, right? Like it's that a professional is obviously an important role um, within a member's uh, life, but that it's not the only piece and that we as family members or colleagues um, or just community members and neighbors have a role to play. And that is, um, I'm glad that you're sort of emphasizing that as well, that it's not just that practitioner. And can you tell us though, not, but the role of practitioners is clearly very important. And what we definitely find is um, that also our practitioners feel like they need more resources, that they need help, that they need support. Can you tell us, and you guys at the center do that work. Can you sort of tell us about the research and training programs the center offers? Sure. Um, you know, I think one of the things uh, to remember in the midst of our pandemic um, is that there's a greater need for mental health services and supports, but the pandemic occurred in the midst of a severe workforce shortage in mental health. So there simply aren't enough psychiatrists, therapists, and mental health case managers to meet the need. Uh, my center has focused on providing training to frontline providers in places like senior centers, community mental health centers, drop-in programs, and peer-run programs so that they can deliver evidence-based interventions in real-world settings. And one example of this is a series of programs that assist people with serious mental illness in enhancing their immune health and their ability to self-manage chronic conditions like diabetes and obesity, which occur at a much higher rate than in the general population. Um, the other example is our work on developing and testing peer-delivered interventions. Peers can now be certified as service providers of um, Medicaid reimbursed services in all 50 states in the US, including Illinois. Um, their presence can help to address the severe workforce gaps that we're now experiencing. And I, I just, I love that you guys have sort of taken a challenge. I mean, workforce development, um, we now hear that all the time within healthcare, but I, we heard about it with regards to psychiatry well before the pandemic. If I remember correctly, psychiatrists have sort of the, the highest median age of um, types of doctors in, in 
the country. And so that's going to be a concern because obviously these psychiatrists are retiring and there aren't enough um, new doctors and entering psychiatry. Is that, is that your um, understanding as well, Judith? Yes, there's a shortage throughout the United States um, and not just in rural areas anymore, even in urban areas. And there's a particular um, shortage of um, ethnically diverse providers. So um, it's difficult, for example, to find Spanish speaking psychiatrists, therapists, um, and, and you know, Spanish speaking is just one example. In Chicago, we have a multitude of communities and there's a need for um, behavioral health services in a number of different languages. Um, so that's one of the reasons why um, turning to natural supporters, um, peers, family members is so important. But what's also important is that they deliver things that are effective, um, things that are um, sensitive to people's needs, things that um, interventions that have been shown uh, to work. So for example, for elderly individuals, there are programs called um, chronic disease self-management education programs. Um, these are funded by the federal government um, and uh, uh, through money that passes through the states. And many of the teachers of these programs um, are our peers who have been trained and um, certified to deliver them. So there are six to eight week programs on falls prevention, for example. Um, there's a program we've done a lot of research on called Wrap for Healthy Aging, um, which helps people manage their emotions along with their physical health. Um, there's programs for diabetes, self-management education, exercise programs for older individuals. Uh, you know, not all needs need to be addressed by clinicians. Uh, and given that we don't have enough anyway, the turn toward these programs and their evidence-based programs is so important um, and something that uh, really people that work in the field of serving individuals on Medicaid need to be aware of and, and make sure the folks they serve um, have access to. Absolutely. And I love what you, you know, highlighting the need that they be evidence-based, that we're not just talking about, okay, we don't have enough doctors, so here's something else. Um, because that, I mean, it's, that's not helpful either. It's, we don't have enough doctors. What are other evidence-based alternatives that can work, that can meet the needs, and so that everybody is practicing at that higher level of their license? And so we see this with things like, um, academic detailing and making sure that primary care physicians feel comfortable helping individuals with sort of more chronic diseases they might not be as familiar with, um, helping on, you know, on managing some uh, mental health disorders that maybe they don't need to see a psychiatrist. Maybe they can see um, their PCP and a licensed clinical social worker, right? Like how can we sort of effectively and in an evidence-based manner um, use our healthcare system efficiently with just acknowledging where our limitations are, um, especially with workforce. In order to address that, um, we offer at our center something called the Online Health and Recovery Solutions Suite. And it contains 18 free products that address the needs of vulnerable individuals. Um, and there are things like uh, weight management class, or a diabetes education toolkit, um, 
there's the uh, enhancing your um, immunity um, manual that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, each of these products can be downloaded for free. Um, and in addition to the product itself, there's a free training webinar on how to deliver it and a 10 minute podcast describing what the product is and different ways it's been used. Um, so one example is our diabetes toolkit. Um, diabetes um, occurs among 30% of people with serious mental illness. And one of the things that we found is that the primary care providers um, and nurses um, that work with people, not just with serious mental illness, but with all kinds of um, other challenges, the, the, many of them on Medicaid, um, weren't familiar with um, ways to educate these individuals using simple um, diabetes education tools that were patient focused. Um, and so we designed a diabetes library where the books in quotes um, consists of one page um, information sheets on things like what's a DASH diet, which is um, a diet that um, uh, providers encourage people with diabetes to follow. Um, and what kinds of medications that I'm taking uh, might interact with the medications that I'm prescribed for my diabetes. And um, how much is too much water to drink and not enough water to drink. Um, and all of these materials are packaged not only in a library, um, but also related to the diabetes standards of care, which is a series of um, uh, things that uh, medical tests and, and examinations that people with diabetes should be having, um, but that many po vulnerable populations don't get. And so they're related back to um, uh, getting an A1C test, for example, which is a blood test, which summarizes um, your uh, blood glucose um, and having your blood pressure taken, getting a certain type of foot exam. Um, so, um, podiatrists and, and others can check to see whether there's um, poor circulation that can sometimes lead to amputations of toes and, and feet, uh, making sure people have a dilated eye exam. Um, uh, retinopathy um, leads to blindness, and this occurs at a much higher rate in vulnerable populations. So we designed this toolkit, first of all, it doesn't focus on just people with serious mental illness. It acknowledges that people with diabetes um, have mental health challenges just in general. Um, and the nice, other nice thing about the toolkit is it's designed for primary care providers um, so that they can understand um, what levels and amounts uh, vulnerable populations uh, uh, can uh, be educated at. They don't over explain things. Um, and also they can print off these handouts um, to take home, for example. Um, also for mental health care providers who, when they have a client with diabetes say, I, I don't know how to manage that part. I'm just gonna focus on the mental illness. But it can also be used by families and people with uh, diabetes themselves. So the solution suite tools are really designed for a number of providers, for people with disabilities and vulnerable populations themselves and their supporters. And I think that's what's important about it. And at the end of um, today's podcast, I'll um, provide the website address so that people can take a look at these free products um, and see if they might be able to use them. Absolutely. And we'll link it as well because it's so 
so critical and you've underlined so many things that I talk about all the time and you know that I just don't think there's enough attention on and so first of all when we think of mental health you know we often just think of like the one piece like how do we manage that mental health disease how do we manage this one piece but it's not it rarely ever presents that way right like it's a person it's a, with all of their experiences and their strengths and their opportunities all wrapped into one and what we often see with these individuals is that it's not their mental health illness or their mental illness that that shortens their lifespan it's their chronic condition that um isn't treated isn't managed you know isn't um you know, cared for in the same way that somebody's who doesn't have a mental illness um, is. And so we see that on average, I believe it's like 19 years or something just staggering that somebody with a severe mental illness lives, you know, significantly shorter than somebody without one, but it's not the mental illness that shortens their lifespan. It's these other chronic conditions. And so that I love that your toolkits sort of acknowledge the, the, full human range of, of people and the needs of them and that they're accessible, not just from a clinician, um, you know, but really, you know, from a, just a right, you know, written in a way that's just easy to understand regardless of um, your clinical background. I think that's so important because the other, on the flip side of that, um, we often see for medicated individuals, especially when you think of like diabetes, sometimes our clinicians that are serving our members think are, that Medicaid members aren't adherent. What they don't always appreciate is that maybe they just didn't understand. And the challenges of their lives that may complicate adherence to um, and, and a referral to get A1C you know, testing or, or, or a podiatrist appointment and the challenges there. And so recognizing and really empowering those patients so they understand the importance of it, that they really understand why. And then they can raise to their doctor, oh, well, I you know, maybe have a transportation issue or maybe that um, time doesn't work for me or that doctor you referred me to, you know, I have to take like three buses. Is there somebody closer where it opens up a dialogue that um, improves care and trust and engagement? Definitely. Um, I think one of the um, challenges to uh, providers who uh, work with um, Medicaid beneficiaries because of their vulnerability is um, uh, engagement and then uh, motivation. And for you know, many individuals, especially those with multiple chronic conditions, um, it's difficult to get started in working on a particular um, condition. So for example, we have a, um, a six week weight management class where the focus is not on uh, reaching a healthy weight. Um, the focus is on um, eating better and becoming more active so that you will lose just a few pounds and notice how much better you feel, um, that you can be more in control of what you eat and, and how you eat it, um, that you don't need to go to the gym to be physically active, and that just trying a little bit um, to address some of these issues really makes you feel better uh, regardless of the fact that you may still um, qualify for the term of obesity or uh, being overweight. 
And really that's the way to motivate people to go on to more intensive um, treatments and um, to engage them is to do things with them that are simple, that make them feel better, that meet their real world needs. Um, you know, one of the things that um, this uh, weight management curriculum focuses on is not on how many pounds you wanna lose, but maybe the fact that you wanna, you know, get down to a size 16 dress for your sister's wedding, so you feel good about yourself, is the kind of motivator um, that, you know, is a target that matters to you. Um, and so making sure that, um, you know, the term for this is patient-centered. We don't use the word patient so much. Um, in, in my field, we, you know, tend to think of people as um, service recipients or people with lived experience of, you know, whatever it is that um, they're dealing with, people living with. So um, just focusing on the goals that matter to them is a way to enhance their motivation, a way to engage them, and a way to get them on the road toward improving uh, their health and their mental health at the same time. Oh, I love that. And I think it just makes so much sense if we just think of, you know, from our own lived experience of being people, like uh, the incremental steps and, and seeing that improvement, it's so rewarding and it keeps you motivated to keep, keep with it. And so again, I just love that, that the work you do, it's evidence-based and it takes that full humanity, that full sort of that person, um, and gives them the tools to empower themselves. Like, I just don't think we do that enough. I don't, I think we sometimes sell our Medicaid members short because they're so capable. They, they're, they're just vibrant members of our community. Um, and you know, when they're empowered, they can do anything. In my experience, Medicaid beneficiaries are, um, very adept at um, getting by on low incomes or um, uh, many health and, and mental health challenges, dealing with um, uh, problems related to the social determinants of health, like living in a neighborhood um, that uh, doesn't have providers nearby or sources of healthy food or safe places to get out and walk and, and, and to exercise. Um, but they've survived in these environments, and um, heck, they've um, you know been able to negotiate enough so that they are on Medicaid, and that in and of itself is um, can be a full time job. And so I agree with you that we don't want to sell people like that short. Um, and you know, from a clinical point of view, they you may see nothing but symptoms and deficits and uh, needs and poor outcomes but they have within them the skills to, first of all, self-manage their difficulties, um, both health and mental health difficulties, um, but also to get engaged in um, improvement if, again, what they're working toward matters to them. Um, so I think the, the key for many providers of um, Medicaid reimbursable services is to find that um, motivator for the people that they work with um, in order to make the services they deliver more effective um, and uh, in order to enhance engagement, which really engagement is what it's all about if you're working with Medicaid beneficiaries. Oh, Judith, I could talk to you for hours and hours, especially about the strength and just the, you know, the the amazing nature of our Medicaid members. So thank you so much for your time. Um, I want to make sure 
I want to make sure you have time to provide that link to the to our listeners. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Sam. Um, you gave me an opportunity to make some points that I think don't often get made when we talk about uh, vulnerable populations and, and Medicaid beneficiaries. So thank you for that. Um, I want to say that our center's website is at www.center, the number four, health and SDC. Org. So that stands for www.centerforhealth and, and then the abbreviation for self-directed care, which is what we're all about, .org. And um, you can also click in the link, I'm sure, to this podcast and, and go there as well. And I want to mention that um, at each of those products in the solution suite, there's a button at the bottom of the page to press if you would like free technical assistance. So if you're, let's say, um, a clergy member who would like to use something that's never occurred to you, um, that you could you know, be able to deliver something to your um, congregation, and you're just wondering how it might be adapted for use in an after church group, for example, press that button and uh, send us an email. That's what that does. And we'll either talk to you over the phone or shoot you back some ideas by email or text. Um, to support your use of it. Um, and that's how I think we can spread our service delivery dollar. Um, not every help and support given to people needs to be funded by Medicaid, uh, but I think surrounding Medicaid beneficiaries with those natural supports is really key. Oh, I couldn't have said it better myself, Judith. Thank you so much for joining and to our listeners to learn more about what IMHIP is doing and to listen to other interesting podcasts like this one. We encourage you to visit our website at imhip.org and don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Samantha Oldsfry, the Sam and Sam Says, and as always, thanks for joining us. And until next time, be well and stay safe.